Hey there, folks. It's Aaron Morgenstein from FlexMedStaff.com. In this podcast with Corinne, we speak with Dr. Rebecca Bernard. She's a family physician down in Florida. We'll speak about how she's found an improved work-life balance by developing a direct primary care model down there in Florida. We'll also speak about physician well-being and what it takes for physicians these days to be happy. We also speak about her three books and the one that's pending. We have a lot in this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we got Rebecca Bernard here with us today, a family practitioner who has been uh, unbelievable. She's written three books, she has one more pending. She has a lot to say about physician well being, improving one's work life balance, and it's so good to have her on our first podcast. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's your first podcast. This is so exciting. I'm absolutely honored to be part of what you're doing. I love your work to try to get physicians to own themselves and to be more empowered. And so I'm glad of what you're doing and I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So for the viewers that don't know you, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm Rebecca Bernard. I'm a family physician. I've been practicing now for 20 years, which is very hard to believe when I see that I just had my 20-year graduation reunion date. Uh, it's hard to believe. And uh, I did medical school in Miami, University of Miami, did my family medicine residency, Florida Hospital, Orlando. I had my first job with the National Health Service Corps working for the underserved. I did about six years there. That was a uh, Good in the sense that it paid back my medical school, difficult in the sense that I was owned by that company and really had no options. So that was a, a tough situation for me, as it is for many who get into those, those sorts of, I call them indentured servitude. Then I went to work for a for-profit health system as an employed outpatient doctor for some years. And finally, I decided I got reality hit me in the face and said, you know what, why don't you own yourself? It's time to take control. And I opened my own practice. I do now direct primary care, and I'm about to celebrate my seventh anniversary. I've never been happier as a doctor, and I would love other doctors to follow this model. Fantastic. I, I think that as physicians, we have good days and bad days. Talk to me about some of the bad days that you've had in medicine and what you've done to overcome them. Well, you know, I still have a nightmare, a recurrent nightmare, where I am going from room to room seeing patients and things are just going wrong left and right. The computer won't work. The electronic health system crashes. I can't find a nurse to help me. This person's waiting for a really long time and I'm just frantic. And finally I explode and I start yelling at people. I start yelling at this, the staff, like, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And then I wake up and I'm like literally sweating and my heart is pounding. And the reason I have that nightmare is because that did happen to me, not just once or twice, but many times. And to the point where, you know, you lose your cool. And, you know, I don't know that I ever got to the point of being a disruptive doctor. Of course, that's the label they throw at us when we finally lose it, when we've been pushed to that extreme. Um, but I probably got pretty darn close to it at a certain point. So what it is, is just being asked to do too much in too little amount of time with too little support with all these additional burdens and barriers being thrown at you and meanwhile the what creates that anxiety what the ultimate reason is is because you're trying to take care of patients you're 
terrified you're going to miss something, someone's going to get hurt, or in, in some way, you're not going to be able to actually do your job because of all these barriers. So those are the bad days in medicine. And, and I won't lie to you and say that direct care, there's absolutely no bad days. But a lot of times those of us in that industry will say the worst day in DPC, the worst day in DPC is better than the best day in traditional fee-for-service practice because you have so much more, more control over those decisions as far as how many patients do I want to see in a day? How many is reasonable? What computer system do I want to use? Can I just say, I'm not doing this particular policy anymore because it's not working and it's not what good for patients. So that is what has changed a lot of what I do in medicine. This is it's like so amazing. Funny. Yeah, because everything, sorry, Erin, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, everything you said, I can. it resonates with me because I'm in trauma medicine and I have done the clinic part and it just totally burnt me out to where you just can't see 25 patients in 15 minute blocks. They're all complicated. You can't even barely get through the first few sentences, let alone what they're actually there for. And there's this constant pressure there are physicians that go home to finish charting another two, three hours and have no time left. So I think what you're saying is absolutely important. I have great respect for DPC doctors. I have uh, one myself. Um, would you say to physicians just to encourage them that this is something that is doable because they're scared. They have financial obligations and other things. Um, what would you say to them? Yeah, so first of all, you can make it work in traditional fee-for-service practice. It's extremely hard. It can You can do it. In fact, I wrote the book, How to Be a Rockstar Doctor, while I was in that type of a practice because I figured out all these workarounds. I started making my own handouts. I had I learned some psychological techniques. Uh, the rockstar doctor idea is to make patients love you even though you're only allowed to be with them for minimal amounts of time. So things like eye contact and smiling and listening and, and all those things, it just takes an incredible amount of energy to do that over and over and over again. And no matter how good you are at it, eventually you're going to get burned out. It just, there's no real way around it. But it can be done. And sometimes I'll tell physicians, especially the ones that are uh, finishing residency, you know, maybe you do fee-for-service for a couple of years. You get experience. You get, I call them the golden handcuffs, where you get a nice chunk of money uh, to work for a couple of years. You save. You live like a resident if you can. And that way, after a couple of years, you walk away and you do what you want to do. That's a very good option for a lot of people. Now, uh, alternately, or alternatively, I do know some doctors who started a direct care right out of residency. That wasn't something that I felt I could do. I wasn't really prepared. Uh, I had to do National Health Service Corps anyways. But I think for a lot of doctors, you know, starting a lower volume type of a practice, you know, there's something to be said for kind of getting that, you know, second residency, which is usually your first job. So for me, it was better to start my DPC after I had some experience. But that being said, any doctor, certainly if you have a few years under your belt, you can be successful in a direct care model. And that's not just primary care, that's also for specialty care as well. The key is learning everything you can about the model and then being very realistic because you have to look at your market. There are places that are extremely amenable to direct care and there are markets, for example, if you're in an area that has a very high Medicaid or HMO saturation, 
that might not be the market for you. I would say most parts of America, there's a, a, a very easy way to do direct care. And we know that there's a huge shortage of primary care physicians. And I think more and more patients are going to be seeking out this type of model because they're going to learn either they aren't going to be able to see a physician in a traditional practice. Maybe they'll get an NP or a PA, or if you're lucky to see the doctor, you'll get just a couple of minutes. So I think there's going to be an increasing um, demand for direct care. So I definitely encourage all doctors to look into it. I can tell you that I actually probably, I probably make, I definitely make the same amount of money, but even probably a little more money now doing direct care than I did in fee for service. And I work way less hours and I'm way happier. So I would absolutely not be afraid to look into it. Rebecca, I have to mention that recurring nightmare that you were having. I've had something similar as a surgeon. I was having a recurring nightmare of my my wounds or my incisions opening back up, what we refer to as dehiscence. I would have this dream at least once a, a week easily. And, you know, I haven't had that dream in several years now since my life has improved. Uh, one thing I wanted to speak to you about is that in your current model with your direct primary care, what are the elements or factors that you've implemented to improve your work-life balance and truly be happier as a physician in this time? It's such a good question. And I think what's key is to be constantly assessing and reinventing the way that you're doing things. I think a lot of us have, I don't know if it's like a seven-year itch, but I, I have that. Like every certain number of years, I start feeling a little discontent with what I'm doing. I start asking myself, you know, is this really what I want or what do I want to be when I grow up? I always ask myself. And what that says to me is I need to look at what I'm doing and just really maybe consider shaking things up a little bit. So one of the things that I did, I've evolved to doing now is I've cut my hours. I used to see patients from 830 and my last patient would be at 530. And then, you know, I said, maybe I start at nine and maybe I end at 430. <laughs> and, you know, I start changing things and, you know, I'm going to not work Mondays. I did that for a while. And then I didn't like that. I said, you know, I'm going to work Mondays, but I'm going to work half days on these other days. And basically I just kept playing around with it until I found really the place that made me the most happy at that time, keeping in mind that what makes you happy today, you might want to change it in the future. Maybe something has uh, occurred in your life. Maybe now there's a family issue. Maybe the, there's a different organization you want to participate more in or a side job. The beauty of direct care is that you have that flexibility because you own yourself. Ultimately, I'm responsible to the patients that I take care of. So I just have to figure out what are my patients going to be okay with? Because ultimately, what I the reason I exist is to serve my patients. So if they're all pretty much okay with those hour changes, then that's going to work. Realizing I can't be everything to everyone. I have to be available to you know most people because otherwise I wouldn't have this model. But I also have to find a way to do it so that I can have a life for myself and do what I want to do. So another thing I started doing, I'm working on my fourth, I just finished my fourth book and, you know, it takes a lot of time to write and a, I, I really need those uninterrupted hours. So I started doing once a week, I started taking off like three days in a row and just staying home and writing. And it, it took some effort to kind of juggle things around, but that's been really successful. I was feeling a little stressed because I don't have time to write. I can't get it done on the weekends. So doing that, that little change, and it's not something I'll do forever, but for the time that I was working on the writing, 
that was really successful. So it's all about physicians are great problem solvers. And the problem when we're employed is we might have these ideas. I've done this before, and I'm sure you have, where you go to your boss and you go, hey, I have a great idea. I think this would be so good for patients. And then you're told, well, that's not how we do things here. Or they'll say, oh yeah, we'll take that to the committee or whatever. And of course, nothing ever happens. Well, when you own yourself, you make those rules, you decide, and you can do it on a dime. I, I think your your comment there about writing is so true. Um, I barely passed elementary school. I am a C plus uh, a writer, but when I write, it's become therapeutic. And if for anyone listening, please get Grammarly. It'll make you a better writer. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about if you were to correct or change the healthcare system, what is the one flaw in the system or one thing you would change that would uh, improve the system for physicians? So hopefully we wouldn't have this issue of so-called burnout or moral injury anymore. There's a lot of flaws in the system and we could talk about it for hours but I can tell you from my experience that the one thing that really, really messed up physician life was the implementation of electronic health records. Not that I'm a, a Luddite, you know, I'm a, I love computers and I use electronic health systems. But what happened was they were forced down our throat before they were ready, before they were actually tested. Physicians were not involved in the creation of them. It was a bunch of software engineers and IT people. And we were forced to use these burdensome systems. We were for forced to enter orders into computers, whereas the old way was really quick and efficient. The new way started taking up all this time. And basically they just kept piling on and piling on these additional data entry requirements. I'm old enough to remember the days of paper charts. Actually, in my residency, we used uh, Epic. So I trained on EHR, but then my first job in a community health center, we were on paper. And I was like, this is a revelation. Like I'm writing and talking to the patient at the same time. Like I can give eye contact. Like, this is amazing. My notes are done. And then we implemented an EHR because it was mandated. And then back to staring at computers and patients hate that. Doctors, we don't like it. Patients, we want to, we're there for the patient. We are not there for the computer. So I think computers have a role, but I would argue that that implementation that was not done in a very thoughtful or physician-led way at all, uh, I think that that really spiked physician burnout. Rebecca, well said. I, I think you're absolutely correct that EMRs were designed without the help of us, the physicians. They were designed by engineers. And we weren't there to work with them on it. I will also tell you that the insurance companies have done the same thing. They are uh, softwares, which annoy the crap out of you and I, um, were designed by non-medical or non-physicians. They were designed by engineers. And when the physicians that even worked for the insurance companies told them that they needed to correct these systems the administrators there refuse to. So we see it on both ends, these poorly designed softwares that were not meant for physicians to use on a daily basis. Aaron, I just want to tell you, tell you a quick story about some years ago, I was at the American Academy of Family Physicians. They had like a government um, advocacy meeting and they had a a woman who was part of Obama's team for implementing health, you know, electronic records. And I stood up at the podium and I said, 
physicians are concerned about these requirements, they're very burdensome and they're very difficult. You know, is there anything being done to make it easier? And she responded to me, we don't think it's a problem. And that was the end. And that was so telling that they don't see it as a problem. Physicians are saying to you, it's the same way with board certification, which is a whole nother thing, which by the way, in transparency, I dropped my ABMS board certification back in 2015, 2016, because they introduced MOC. It wasn't the MOC that upset me a little bit, but what really angered me is when physicians complained and there were pages, they, they did surveys and doctors overwhelmingly told them, this is burdensome, this is expensive. They said, we don't care. And when people say to me that are supposed to be helping me to do my job as a physician and also mandating that I do these things as a physician and tell me, I don't care what you think about it, you're going to do it anyways, that gets my back up. <laughs> and, and I get this natural rebellion. Like at some points I go, oh, I should probably reboard certify if I want to do expert witness work and things like that. And then I just, I can't do it because I just get so infuriated by this idea that I'm being told that, well, we don't care what you think. You're just going to do it anyway. Uh, I to totally, 100%. Obviously, we're all going to agree with that. Um, I, I wanted to start talking about uh, two of your books. You wrote about physician well-being. I was wondering if you could tell us about where that came from, the idea to write that book, and maybe three things that you could tell the physician audience about how they can improve their well-being. Yeah, the reason I wrote Physician Wellness was actually a very sad reason, and that is that we had a physician suicide in our community, um, and it was something that I never saw coming, and really none of us who knew this doctor did happy-go-lucky, fantastic guy, involved in everything, and he took his own life. Around that same time, the county north of us also had a physician suicide. So our county medical societies were putting our heads together, asking ourselves, what can we do to prevent physician suicide to help physicians with their well-being? So we created a physician wellness program that paired physicians confidentially with a psychologist in the community. And as part of that, I started researching physician burnout, physician wellness, and, and physician suicide. And I started spending some time with the psychologist that was offering this program and learning so much from him about what doctors could do to take control of their well-being. And so after working with him for a long time and writing, uh, we put together, we actually co-authored this book. Really, the idea is to encourage physicians to get help, um, but also just to give them some basic tools, mindfulness and cognitive reframing. And, you know, a lot of us like me are catastrophizers, we're perfectionists. So different strategies that we can use to kind of overcome some of those issues that we have. So I would encourage all physicians, if you're just not sure, you're not happy or you're, you're, dis you're not content with what you're doing, you know, really examine what's going on and remember that you always have choices. I used to feel like I had no choice. I felt very trapped. In fact, one night I was really in a bad place and I called my sister, it was probably the middle of the night and I was crying and she was like, what's wrong? And I said, well, I hate my job. And she said, well, quit your job. <laughs> and I was like, well, well, I can't just quit my job because then where am I going to live? And you know, I was crying. And, and she said, oh, well, just move out to Oregon with me. You can live with me and my kids. And my sister's a little bit of a hippie. So she was like, come on out to Oregon. No problem. You can work locums. And I, I stopped crying because I was like, 
well, you know, I could do that. It sounds awful, but you know, yeah, I could do that. And then I said, but, but, you know, I have this house and it's underwater. It was during the mortgage crisis. And she said, well, just foreclose on the house. And I was like, huh, you know, like these weren't good choices, but they had never even occurred to me. Like I'm not trapped. I could quit my job. I could move in with my sister. I could foreclose on my house. I didn't want to do any of these things, but just the fact and the realization that I could do those things that actually clicked something in my brain and it changed everything for me. I realized I'm not trapped. I'm just in this distorted thought pattern, which is what physicians and many get into. And actually that's a really dangerous place because that's what psychologists and psychiatrists believe can lead you down to this hopelessness and this distorted thinking that can lead towards suicidal thinking. So we need to realize we're not trapped. And if we're having those thoughts, then work with somebody to help you overcome that. And for me, I'm always going to recommend a therapist, someone that I know has standardized training and certification to help you, not just someone to tell you, well, quit doing that, but to ask you, help you think about why am I stuck with this? Or what is it about how I think about things that is making it so hard for me to leave a toxic situation, for example. So I would say just get help. You're not alone and you're never trapped. You always have options. This is so important what you said, because <clears throat> seeing and reading these posts from physicians, they feel like they're stuck and they're in bad situations work-wise and they feel like they can't leave or they can't make a change. And they give all these reasons or excuses. And it's exactly what you said. No, we're not trapped. We can unshackle ourselves. There are options. Maybe it's not the one you thought of, but there is something else out there. So I, I love that you said that. Um, what else can we talk about in terms of the um, uh, autonomy? I think is a big thing. I always feel. Um, any other thoughts on that from you? Well, yeah, I think what you guys are doing and what you're promoting is a key way for physicians to develop autonomy again, because some doctors are in a position or want to open their own practice and direct care can be, as I mentioned, primary care and specialties. But I worry a lot about what happens for our colleagues that are in a hospital uh, required situation, surgeons, anesthesiologists, you know, and other physicians that require hospital um, infrastructure to do what they do. And so what I love is looking at options for locums, for being a contract employee. What I learned when I moonlighted for a hospice organization is that they treated me extremely well when I was a contract employee, but the W-2 employees didn't feel so great. And I think that it's so fascinating. It's like when your contract, they kind of, it's just the idea that they need you more than you need them. So I would get these emails from them about mandatory meetings and culture of this and that. And I would just delete them because it I, it didn't matter. And if I didn't go and they don't want to you know continue to work with me, that's fine. Uh, but it was, they didn't ever push the issue. It was never a problem. And I just continued happily doing my shifts and making money and not dealing with any of that nonsense that drove everybody else crazy. So I think looking into what you're, providing as a resource, I think that's really essential for physicians. I, I want to make it known to everyone that we're not giving advice on uh, foreclosing on your home. Um, uh, we'll leave that up to Rebecca and her expertise. And I did not foreclose on my home. <laughs> and I did not quit. Actually, it's a good point. I didn't quit my job at that time. I didn't foreclose on my home. I didn't do any, I didn't move in with my sister, for God's sake. Um, 
later on, I made changes. I made them strategically and they didn't involve anything where I blew up my life, but you could if you wanted to, but go ahead, Aaron. Thanks. <laughs> I want to talk about your second, uh, another one of your books. Uh, I think I'm a rock star surgeon. At least I tell myself that. I think Corinne thinks she's a rock star uh, hospitalist. We have, we have no idea. Uh, what does it take to be a rock star physician and what'd you put in your book? Yeah, the idea with the rock star doctor is this. Patients don't know if you're good at what you do. And I think this is why we see such a surge in non-physician practitioners and patients. I love my NP. I love my PA. And that's great. Um, you, they want a person who is going to be nice to them. They want a person that's going to be listening to them and take the time with them. And you know what? That's what we want too as physicians. So what my book was intended to do was to teach physicians how to put on this persona, this very affable, friendly, caring, listening physician, which we all are. It's just that we don't always know how to show that, especially when we're beaten down in a system that's, you know, basically moving us through like cattle. So the book was, the idea was just how to show that, how to be, I call it on stage. So yeah, you are a rock star doctor. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is a rock star doctor, but what really matters is how patients perceive of you. So we're all very good at what we do because we spent a lot of years and we've demonstrated proficiency through our examinations and standardized training, but we also have to know how to show that so that patients love us. So, and that goes, even if you open your own direct care practice, remember you're getting your patients almost exclusively through word of mouth. You can advertise and, you know, maybe there's a role for that. Although I would argue that spending a lot of money on advertising is really not where it's at and, and actually is going to be negative for your overhead and your expenses. What you want is a very loyal patient following, patients who love you, who tell everybody, my doctor is the best. I love her. She listens to me. And so that's really what the book was teaching doctors. And uh, I think it's something that's a lot easier to do, though, when you are owning yourself and you have more time with patients, because really, that's what people want is that relationship. Rebecca, I want to know what you think is the biggest risk physicians can take today to get themselves outside of the traditional life of being a physician. So that employed model, the traditional, what's the biggest risk that either you took in your life or that you've seen other physicians or you recommend other physicians take? I think it's fear. You know, there's the fear of not having enough money. Okay, that's legitimate. I get that. You have to have a certain amount of money to pay your bills. Maybe you have children in school, you know, things like that. So that's one. And it's particularly challenging when you have a um, a one earner in the family, and that's the physician. So I get where that feels very risky. Uh, that can definitely be overcome with planning. And uh, I think that we have to learn how to get over that fear. And, and, and there's a lot of ways to mitigate that. There's also fear of failure. And I know that for me, I had this idea like, well, what if I open a practice and nobody comes? And so that's why I said, you know, I'll, I'll try it for a year. And if it fails, no big deal. I can always go work for somebody else. I'm a woman family doctor for Pete's sake. You know, I can get a job. So you have to get past the fear of not having enough money, fear of failure, um, fear of what other people will say, you know, oh, you know, why would, is she going to do something like that? Oh, she, you know, people will say to me, my critics, especially that, 
you know, because I do a lot of writing. So some people will look for things to to attack and they'll say, oh, she doesn't care about patients. She's a concierge doctor. She just takes care of rich patients. And actually, I about 50% of my patients lack health insurance or are underinsured and are low income. So actually, it's the opposite. But, you know, we worry about what people are going to say. So I think those are some of the big barriers that, that doctors face and just the fear of the unknown. And again, these are things that can be overcome with education, knowledge, information. There are hundreds and hundreds of direct care doctors just like me who are willing and happy to talk with you about what we've done. There are all sorts of websites now. There are lots of ways to learn about what other people are doing so that you can be prepared to do something like this too. Fantastic. So, um, I think using your networking with other physicians is really important. Use them as a support system to ask questions, to learn how others are doing things and kind of be out there and don't feel alone. Would you agree? hundred percent. And in fact, it's so great because I love to talk and write about this. We call ourselves DPC evangelists because we're maybe a little pushy about it. Uh, sometimes people are like, please, I don't mean, tell me answers other than DPC. And, you know, uh, there are, but um, I will say that having someone else to talk to, having a mentor, you know, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I read a post on Sermo, which is this doctor web social media platform by Dr. Lee Gross. He is a, a physician in Florida in Northport, and he was one of the very earliest adapters of this model. I read him talking about it years before I started the practice. And I said, my God, this is amazing. I want to do this. And Lee is a, a mentor to me because he went first and he showed that it was doable. And so I hope to be a mentor to other physicians. And I have fortunately had the opportunity to help other doctors in my community by you know, sharing what I know, giving them resources and helping them. You know, Usually you'll find that in direct care, we're very happy to help each other out and at no fee. You will very, if you find a, D, a DPC doctor trying to charge money or a DPC person trying to charge money to help you start a practice, run away because you're going to find so many doctors that are freely giving this information because we really want to help our colleagues do what we're doing because we believe in the model. We believe that it's what's best for doctors and for patients. So yeah, reach out to a DPC doctor in your community or even on social media, and you'll be amazed at how much information they will freely give and help each other out. Rebecca, I wanted to start winding down this conversation. It's been amazing. Uh, I wanted to ask you to tell us about your book that is coming out, its title, why it was written, and the purpose of it. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I wrote the book with my co-author, Naran Alajba, called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. The reason I wrote the book, we wrote the book, is because we realized through social media, actually, all these doctors were posting these really sad and terrible stories and about patients receiving care from non-physicians. And a lot of times they had no idea that they weren't seeing physicians. And what we realized is that many corporations across the country are replacing physicians with non-physician practitioners, and patients are really losing their choice to see a doctor. And so we started researching, and what I discovered was really astounding. There is a lot of data about non-physician practitioner care, but there is absolutely no scientific evidence that when they are working independently without a physician, and dealing with like typical regular patients, not just really simple things, there's no evidence that they can provide high quality care. It just hasn't been done. 
And that was really astounding to us when we realized that. So the first book discusses the growth of these professions, why it's happened, and just explains to patients that, you know, you need to ask and you need to know who's taking care of you. Now, after I wrote that book, of course, I got a lot of criticisms and um, there was um, a, a lot of condemnation. There was press releases against me and people wrote bad reviews about me and Dr. Elajba. And uh, so we decided we wanted to respond to some of those criticisms. So we started a podcast called Patients at Risk, and we started interviewing different people. And we got so much more information. So after another year or two, I said, my goodness, we have another book here because there's so much new stuff that's coming out. So the sequel to Patients at Risk is called Imposter Doctors, and it's going to be published in the next couple of months. And it basically builds on Patients at Risk tells more stories, really gets in depth into some of the scientific analysis and just explains why patients need to understand this, why it's important. And patients can decide for themselves what patients can, can decide for themselves who they think is best to take care of them. That's always something I support. But that being said, they need to have a choice. And increasingly, because of the way systems are hiring, they may not have a choice whether or not they're going to even be cared for by a physician. This topic of uh, advanced practitioners, uh, PAs, NPs, certainly a highly debated topic and could be another podcast and a very good one. I, I wanted to ask you as we wind down here, what do you do for fun other than writing? Mm, writing is definitely my big hobby. Uh, that I, I get into that flow state, as they talk about, where all of a sudden you look up and hours have passed. Um, but other things that I love to do is travel. I'm a huge travel person. COVID put a big crimp in that, so it didn't travel for a couple of years. But getting back into that, I've been to Africa a couple of times to look at the animals and you know different parts of Europe. So planning a trip to um, to Uganda to try to see the gorillas this summer. So traveling, uh, I'm out in my backyard garden battling all the pests and critters here in South Florida, uh, unsuccessfully most of the time, but you know, it has made me appreciate how cheap food is when you go, you know, I pulled up a parsnip <laughs> that I had been working on growing for like literally months and it looked pretty good. It looked, you know, real bushy. I pulled it out and it was literally like one inch long. And I said to myself, you know, it probably cost me about, you know, 50 bucks in fertilizers and all this stuff to grow this parsnip. And I could buy a bag of parsnips for two bucks. But that being said, <laughs> that's one of the little hobbies that I've been working on lately. I understand. I just made a poke bowl last night and I must have spent a hundred bucks and I could have spent a lot less. Um, but it was, but it was tasted so much better, right? Because you yeah. did it yourself. All right, let's end with three questions. Okay. What's your favorite place to visit domestically or internationally? Wow. Oh my gosh. That's a really tough question. And because I do travel so much, people will often say, you know, what's the best place you've ever traveled? I'm going to give you two. One is Botswana, just because the animals are just everywhere and it's just amazing and magical. The second is Egypt, because if you are interested in history, you just can't get much further back in time than going to Egypt. You drive anywhere you go, you turn your head to the left or to the right, and there are ancient Egyptian ruins. So absolutely fascinating places. I recommend both of them. Next question. Um, you talked about having three days off or setting up your schedule for three days off. With your improved work-life balance you have now, what day of the week do you prefer to have up, have off and why? That is such a tough question because I played with it in so many ways. I've, you know, 
taken full days off here and there. And actually now I'm doing something totally different. And this is why there isn't a real answer to this. So uh, this is crazy, but my cleaning people come to my house on Monday. So I used to take Mondays off, but then I realized that I couldn't really get anything done because they were there. So I said, okay, I'll go into my office on Mondays. And then on, I would take Fridays off, but then I discovered that a lot of people like to come in for their immigration physicals on Fridays. So now what I do is I work, I go in around uh, 11 or 12 on Mondays. So that way I have the morning, a leisurely morning to prep my house, go into work. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I finish my day around two or three in the afternoon. And then I have the afternoon off and I can arrange appointments. And then Friday, I work the mornings and then I have the afternoons off. So there's not a perfect answer to this. It's going to depend like today. It's different for me than it was a couple of years ago when I used to be off Mondays and Fridays. And I, I like that because I was doing more traveling. So I would have like those three day or four day weekends. So I think you just got to look at your life, what's going on in it and figure out what you think would be the best, but you've got to have time off in your week because there are things that you just can't get done on the weekends, like doctor's appointments and post offices and banking and things like that. So that needs to be scheduled. That's time for you. And that should be just be mandatory in any job you have. I agree completely. Now, last question. What's your favorite book? <gasps> oh my gosh. That's a other really than your own. One. Well, I would never put my book on the list of favorite books because there are so many amazing books out there. That is a horrible question. How dare you ask me that without preparation? Because there are so many books that I love. But what jumped into my head, right? The first thought was Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. I just, I love satire. And that just book kind of opened my mind to like, wow, uh, just the idea of the ridiculousness of the world, which really we see today as we look at what's going on in politics and you know just across the country. There, I think the idea is you gotta laugh about some of these things and you gotta realize that you can't take life too seriously. Hey, this has been terrific, Rebecca. Thanks so much. I hope everyone picks up her new book that's coming out soon. Uh, it's been fantastic. What a great first podcast we have. You were the best. Uh, the I'm best. the best podcast guest you've had. <laughs> the best guest we've had so far. <laughs> on on the very first and only. <laughs> From both thank Corinne you. and I, thank, thank you, you so much, much for joining us. It's been really fun. Thank you. I really appreciate you. Mm -hmm.